Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the cock ups. (laughs) Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Extra Helpings, uh, Season 5, our first Extra Helpings, eh, Paul? That's right, Episodes 1 to 3. And, mate, the first episode this season was the Maya, which was, you know, you were doing the heavy lifting. I really enjoyed it. So what, what have you got for us today, mate? Well, we've got quite a lot of uh, feedback, haven't we, on the uh, Twitter and social medias, and particularly about the howler we talked about, Hernan Cortez, and, oh, yes, and yes. obviously you got Pizarro in there and Alvarado as well. Um, a few people did say... We've been a bit harsh, hadn't we? Um, uh, I don't know. But, because, but, well, look, you, go on, go on, go on. Sure, look, there's no getting away from it. They're definitely brutal, yeah, pretty ruthless guys as well. But the point's been made, and I think it's a good one, that yeah, to set off with just a few hundred men into the complete unknown, you know, sure, they might have had a weaponry advantage, but at times they're up against armies of 20,000, 30,000 men, not, not to mention you know, your jungles, your wild animals, and all those diseases as well. It does only take... <laughs> One arrow, one poison dart, and that's that's you gone. So we have to admit that Cortez um, and Pizarro and Alvarado, they were brave as much as they were brutal. We're not going to call them heroes, but yeah, perhaps... Okay, fair point. But of course, at the same time, Mikey, that doesn't excuse the fact that the Maya have been so downplayed in history, because as we said, you know, like the Aztecs, they've given so much to the modern world. And that's where you came in with your uh, chocolate story, didn't you, Mikey? And I think you've actually got something more for us. Well, yes, mate, I am going to run with a ball a bit on chocolate right now. I want to talk about how chocolate went from being this exclusive, decadent treat to the upper class to that humble snack we know it as today. Mm. Remember a while back we were talking about Columbus and I, I mentioned that uh, ch- hot chocolate recipe. The hot chocolate recipe, yep. From Spain. From all over the world. Yeah, That's yeah, right, all, all the bits the, together, yes. All the ingredients. Well, if you really want to talk about the height of decadence and hot chocolate, because it was, it was served as a drink for centuries, mm-hmm. you've really got to talk about 17th and 18th century London. Mm-hmm. They were called chocolate houses, Paul. Oh, right, not coffee houses, chocolate. They came first, yes. Yes, but mate, these weren't milk bars. <laughs> they were certainly ex- Extravagant. In fact, they used to charge admission just to get in. Right. But they're also dens of inequity, mm. of gambling. Right. And even treason. Treason. Yeah, Charles II tried to close down the chocolate houses because wow. he thought the Whigs were in there conspiring against him. Oh. And there's one called the Cocoa Tree where recently, on the grounds where it was, mm. they actually found a hidden escape tunnel. Ooh. But I'm going to talk about probably the most famous of all the chocolate houses. White's Chocolate House. Right, yes. yes. Okay. It opened in 1693. Right. And when it did, Jonathan Swift described it as the bane of half of English nobility. <laughs> right. It was, it was so decadent. In fact, mate, you, you'll love this. It's actually the Chocolate House featured in Hogarth. Oh, yes. Hogarth makes progress. Yes. It's the one where they're gambling yes. in the Chocolate House and it's burning down around them mm. and they don't ever notice it. And this is true. In fact, in 1733, it did burn down. Oh, Right. But it then morphed into something different. It actually became a toffee gentleman's club. Ah, yes, the gentleman's club right, that we have today. Yeah, in fact, its last claim to fame was Prince Charles had his bucks night there before he married Diana. <laughs> and we all know how well that went. <laughs> yeah, exactly, mate. 
But really, when we're talking about chocolate as we know it today, we've got to look at Victorian England mm. and two people. We've got to look at a guy called Joseph Fry. Sure. He's the first person to put melted butter with cocoa powder yep. and gave us the chocolate bar. Yes. And we've got to look at the Cadbury family. Cadbury, of course. You're, you see, they were tea and coffee importers and distributors, mm. but that almost sent them bankrupt. It was when they concentrated on chocolate that their fortunes really took off. Right. Now, the thing about Cadbury, as opposed to the decadent old chocolate houses of London town, they were quite devout Quakers. Oh, that's right, yes. And there were two brothers, is that right, Mikey? Yeah, George and Richard. Now, mm. they built the town of Bourneville. Bourneville, yes, of course, in Worcestershire, yeah. yeah. And it's quite funny, that one, isn't it? Because they put the ville on the end, Bourneville. Apparently, that was to antagonise their rival French chocolate makers. <laughs> exactly, mate. But here's the thing. It was sort of seen as a workers' utopia. The rents were cheap. There was good housing. There was medical staff, decent wages because they were Quakers. There were no pubs. That's right. And isn't there one down in Tasmania? Yeah, well, yeah in the suburb of Claremont as well. But here's the interesting thing about that Bourneville place. Mm. After World War II and all the bombing, it actually became the blueprint for British housing estates right. after the war. Gotcha. But when it comes to chocolate, we've got to talk America. Now, we talked yes. before about Hershey mm-hmm. and you know, the Columbian Fair. That's right, yeah. But in the 20th century, it's when chocolate bars explode, particularly between the wars. Sure. Between the First World War and the Second World War, there are tens of thousands of chocolate bars launched onto the American market. Right. And this has got a lot to do with the Great Depression. Okay. Because, and let's be honest, and I remember my mother talking about this with her family, Mm. a chocolate bar was seen as a cheap meal almost. Meal? Yeah, like for my aunts, it it was the Milky Way bar. But in the States... A calorific chocolate bar could replace a proper meal. In, in fact, to the point where they had some really strange chocolate bars in the market. Okay. There was one called the Vegetable Sandwich. Vegetable Sandwich. Yeah, <laughs> mate, it's a chocolate bar that contains celery, peppers, and dried cabbage. And chocolate. It didn't really work, but the most successful was one called Chicken Dinner. Chicken no, Dinner winner. No, yeah, don't worry, Paul. It didn't contain any chicken, but it, right. did, it did have a roast chicken on the wrapper. Okay. And its claim was that it had the same nutritional value as a roast meal. No way. Yeah, mate, it was still going up until the 1960s, and you'll love this. They had the best delivery trucks in the world. Okay. Imagine sort of like a Mr. Whippy van with a giant chicken on top, <laughs> and every time you beep the horn, it clucked. <laughs> All right, which takes us on to episode two, of course, and that, you know, howler of howler, stinker of a Scotsman, Gregor McGregor. Gregor McGregor. But you reckon, Mikey, that you've been doing some digging since then. You found a woman um, in Europe who might be ready to give him a run for his money. Yes, mate. We all vaguely know what a Ponzi scheme is. Yeah. It's a fraud that lures investors in with returns way above market values. And quite often there are no investments at all. You just need to bring new people in. You get in. the money for the next next tranche, yeah. Now, it gets his name from Charles Ponzi, mm-hmm. who was working out of Boston in the 1920s. Okay. But 60 years before, there was a woman in Germany. 60 years before? Yeah. Her name was Adele Spitzita. All right. And she was on the scam between 1869 and 1872. Now, Adele, I'm, I'm surprised no one's made a movie about this woman. <laughs> okay. Look, she morphed from being a promising young actor and folk singer mm-hmm. into a shady banker after her theatrical career had begun to wane. Right. Mate, she was so successful at setting up these fake banks and these Ponzi schemes that before she was caught, she was considered to be the richest woman in Bavaria. Wow, just for making money from robbing Peter to pay Paul. So what happened to her? Well, mate, by the time she was done, she had blown almost 400 million euros in today's money. Wow. And it had been lost to 38,000 investors, and there were actually a spate of suicides. But here's the problem. 
there were no actual laws on the books that adequately covered her crimes. No way. She thought the whole thing up. So she only spent three years in prison for bad accounting and mishandling other people's money. Wow. So after she's released, after only three years in prison, she tries a few more schemes and, look, she's arrested again in 1880 (laughs) for attempting to establish a bank without the proper papers and permits. This is the bit I love. In between swindles, she still found time to write her memoirs and she would occasionally perform as a folk singer under the name Adele Vio. (laughs) It's a perfect role for Taylor Swift. This brings us to the third episode of our fifth season, which was a look at Antarctica, mate. Yes. And a few unsung heroes. That's right. We talked about Charles Wilkes, didn't we? And we have been accused of being a bit mean to the other guys like Shackleton and Scott. Well, yeah, look, we didn't really build them up as heroes, did we, Mikey? So I do want to slightly apologise and backtrack on that, particularly one of the tweets we got um, on social media, because Captain Scott may have been overhyped in the history books. But that can't be said for his son, Peter, because his son, Peter, went on to found the World Wildlife Fund in 1961. Which is still going today, so that is impressive. Yes, that's one Scott that we Brits can rightly be proud of. But the other story that's been thrown at Mikey is about a guy called Sir Edgeworth David. Now, you remember I was talking about the Japanese explorer Nobu and how he'd, his first attempt down to Antarctica had been driven back and he yeah. went back to do it a second time. And while he was seeing out the winter in the middle, he spent his time in Sydney. Now, this guy, Sir Edgeworth David, he's a half Welsh, half Australian. I haven't heard of him before. Well, neither had I, but he was a bit of an explorer himself. And he was one of the early guys to first make it down to Antarctica. Because you've got to remember, Mikey, we were talking about the South Pole, weren't we? But of course, there's two South Poles. There's the geographic Mm -hmm. South Pole and there's the magnetic South Pole. And I didn't realise, but they're actually quite a few hundred miles away from each other. I thought they were just next door. And this guy, Edgeworth David, he was part of Shackleton's first Nimrod expedition, which attempted to make it to the magnetic pole. That expedition actually failed. But later, David returns again with Shackleton and has success. In fact, in 1908, he also leads the first expedition to the summit of Mount Erebus, which you remember we were talking about Antarctica being home to mountain ranges of volcanoes. Well, Erebus is the only active volcano in Antarctica. And this guy, Sir Edgeworth, he led the expedition to the top. And one of his students with him was the guy that you mentioned, Mawson with the Huts. Oh, one of our most famous Antarctic explorers, right? Right. Well, the thing is, Mikey, I've been sent this brilliant tweet and I've looked into it. While my man Shirase Nobu was wintering in Sydney, he met up with Sir Edgeworth David. David gave him a lot of advice, showed him all the maps and surveys that he'd done on his expeditions, and that really helped Nobu make the first landfall with his ship, if you remember, on the Edward VII Peninsula. Well, as a thank you gift, Nobu gave Sir Edgeworth this magnificent 17th century samurai sword, and that is still here in Sydney. It's actually on display in the Australian Museum. Oh, I know what I'm doing this afternoon. Now, mate, while we were talking about Antarctica, we also got sidetracked by me. <laughs> we were looking at ice and refrigerant yes. and the ancient Persians. Ah, the ice houses, that's right. Well, if we're going to talk about ice, mate, we've got to finish the story. I want to talk about a guy called Frederick Tudor, mm. also known as the Ice King. Ice King? Yeah, I know, oh, hang it, on. <laughs> it sounds dodgy now. Yes. But you got to remember, Frederick was born in 1783. No, right. And the Tudors were a very wealthy Massachusetts family. Mm. But Frederick was a bit of a black sheep of the family. Like, he didn't go to university. He got into the family business. Right. But in 1805, he and his brother, 
are having a picnic mm. and they've got some ice that's been cut out of the local frozen lake in their mm. drinks. Mm. And they start thinking about, and this is sort of strange, wouldn't it be great if you could have ice in your drink like this but sitting on an exotic beach with the sun beating down on you. You know, like one of the luxury resorts in the Caribbean. Right. So in 1806, yeah. he buys his first brig, The Favourite. And the Boston Gazette reports, and I'm going to read directly here. Yeah. No joke, a vessel has cleared at the Custom House for Martinique with a shipment of ice. We hope this will not be a slippery speculation. <laughs> Look, no one really knows why he chose Martinique. Maybe he'd been there on holidays. Yeah. But anyway, it's a three-week journey and a fair amount of the ice melted. But what was left, he sold for four and a half thousand dollars. No way. And he was on his way. And next stop, Cuba. All right, but you've said that some of it melts along the way. How did that work, Mike? How did they ship ice all the way from Massachusetts to the Caribbean? Well, mate, they used sawdust as insulation and, wow. and, and then later charcoal and, right. and especially built containers. Ah. And yet some of it did melt. In fact, the trips to Cuba actually ended up losing a lot of money on that. In fact, <laughs> oh. he, he had ups and downs financially all along the way. Right. In 1812 and 1813, he finds himself in debtor's prison. But by 1816, he's got his act together. He's shipping ice to Charleston, South Carolina, Savannah, Georgia, Great. and New Orleans. In fact, in 1825, things become even better for him because one of his suppliers has figured out a better way of harvesting ice because before, they were cutting it by hand. Yeah. And it was a really dangerous job. So this guy comes up with a... So like a horse-drawn blade. So imagine a plough for cutting ice. Yeah. And this trebles their productivity. Ooh. But one of his problems was he actually had to convince people to enjoy ice in their drink. Sure. So for a start, great marketing campaign, he'd give away the first taste of ice for free. Ooh. That sounds creepy. That is like the joke. <laughs> yeah. <that's so> <laughs> but what, and actually what really got it going in the long run was the invention of a cocktail, the smash. Mm. It's basically a, a mint julep slushy. Ooh, nice. I think I might make one this afternoon. By 1845, he and others who are now in the business, mm. they're shipping ice all over the world. He becomes known as the Ice King. As I mentioned yes. Before. He was one of the richest men in America. Mate, in the run-up to the Civil War, American ships carried more tonnage of ice than any other product except cotton. <laughs> Which brings us to our last extra helping for today, Mikey. And I have to say, this is a really bizarre one. We're back in Antarctica. We're still talking about freezing ice. But we're also going to touch upon someone who we've tried to avoid, really. Join, oh, I think I know who you mean. Join the episodes, isn't it? But I'm afraid it's time for him to get involved. We're going to talk about Hitler. Hitler in the Antarctic? All right. Well, it's the 1930s. I didn't realise this, but the Nazis had also shown an interest in Antarctica and sent down some expeditions to survey and even maybe lay a claim to a slice because obviously at the time it was getting divvied yeah. up wasn't it between the Brits, America, Australia, yeah, yeah. France. So the Germans said they wanted to get involved and they wanted to call their slice and forgive my German here Mikey, yeah. Neuschwabenland and to show just how serious they were about doing so in December 1938 they sent their own ship, the MS Schwabenland, down through the Atlantic on an expedition that would last right up until April 1939. And during that mission, which they say is really to protect the German whalers and the whaling industry, they do indeed lay claim to part of Antarctica, the bit that we know now as Dronning Maudland. But the truth is, Mikey, it wasn't so much an expedition as a bit of a land grab because that area of Antarctica had already been claimed by the Norwegians 
and was officially recognised as theirs in January 1939. But that didn't stop the Germans, because this ship, the Schwabenland, it was equipped with this crazy steam catapult, which could launch two of their Dornierval flying boats. And these flying boats, once they were up in the air, they would conduct photo surveys, by the end of which they'd covered over 600,000 square kilometres. And they'd be dropping aluminium flags from the aircraft to show the turning points and the borders. And then they'd follow up these flights with foot expeditions to mark out their territory. So do they actually build a base? They don't actually build a base because, of course, we're talking about 1939 now and the war's about to break out. But there is evidence of further expeditions planned with exactly that possibility. Plans, of course, which end up getting mothballed. Ah, so that's the end of the story. Well, there is no further evidence of German activity in Antarctica itself. But the story doesn't end there. Because on the morning of July the 10th, 1945, a German U-boat, the U-530, arrives in the Argentinian naval base of Mar del Plata, which is near Buenos Aires. Hang on, that's two months after the German surrender. Yeah, after May 1945, that's right. And during those two months, Mikey, there's a lot of rumours circulating both in Europe and around the world, rumours that Hitler is still alive. So let me get this straight. They're saying Hitler was on this U-boat? Not necessarily, but as I said, there are these rumours that Hitler's escaped, along with Eva Braun and Martin Bormann and these kind of people. And the big rumour starts to build that this U-boat has carried them from Europe and dropped them either in Antarctica in the base or somewhere down on the coast of Patagonia. This sounds absolutely ridiculous. Well, it should do, Mikey, but a Hungarian exile who's down in Argentina, a guy called Ladislas Zabo, he starts writing in the Argentine newspapers and he comes up with this detailed account showing how Hitler and his entourage have escaped. They've made their way to South America and they're still at large. And rather than the story getting dismissed as a dead duck, the rumours continue to spread. And in fact, newspapers all around the world, in London, New York, Sydney, pick up Zabo's account and run with it. And here's the thing, Mikey, just as it is about to get finally quashed in August 1945, a second U-boat, the U-977, appears in the same port, Mar del Plata, further fueling speculation. What, that Hitler might be in Antarctica? <laughs> yeah, no, it sounds crazy sitting here today. But at the time, it was taken really, really seriously. In fact, the Yanks and the Brits immediately order that the commanders of the U-boats and all their crew be arrested. They send down squads of Navy interrogators and everyone on the U-boats has the screws put on them. But come on, Paulie, we all know it's nonsense. Right, and in fact, that's, of course, what they concluded because it turns out that these poor U-boat commanders, they'd been under the sea when the war had come to an end, and they just carried on none the wiser. Until they just popped up in Argentina. Exactly. All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media, same as usual, your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at The Rest Is Hist. The Rest Is Hist, and you'll find all that in the show notes. And whenever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment. On whichever platform you happen to use, it's always great to get your feedback. Yeah, keep it all coming. We're having lots of fun out there, lots of extra stories. And maps. There's always more maps. <laughs> right, which brings us to next week. And next week, Mikey, we're back on the main episodes. You're taking us to the movie world. Yes, but with very dark overtones. Mm -hmm.